There is a, therefore, a twofold denial of the nature of Scripture, denying the fact that God's people can understand it and denying the fact that the Scriptures that God has given, the law that God has given, is in and of itself sufficient for God's people. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained for me as korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. One of the crazy things that came out of that period of time that we all unfortunately remember so well that we probably like to forget, known as the COVID pandemic, one of the crazy things that came out of that, one of the many things that probably along with you, I said to myself, I never thought I'd see this happen, was this entire social movement to teach ourselves how to wash our hands. Remember that? When it was just decided somehow the powers that be decided that we didn't know how to wash our hands. And so there was the, all these videos and all this talk about the proper way to wash your hands. Well, in the passage in which we turn to now, Jesus is also faced with a similar sort of situation in which apparently he's told his disciples don't know how to wash his hands. This is the well-known incident in which they, the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus having a bone to pick with him about the lack of washing of hands of his disciples. So as they come to him, we see here in verse 1, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, this is of course right on the heels, like we said, of that time there in Gennesaret. In fact, they're probably still here in Gennesaret, or probably, perhaps they've made their way to Capernaum, but in, they're in the region, they're in the area. And the Pharisees now come to him again, the Pharisees and the scribes gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So we're told again, that this is now the second time that we're told that they come from Jerusalem in order to confront Jesus. So in this area, if Jesus is still in Gennesaret, this is more than 90 miles. It's at least 90 miles. If, they're, if they've made their way down to Capernaum, then it's 90 miles plus to, from Jerusalem to where they are. These Pharisees and scribes have taken the time to take this 90-mile multi-day journey in order to confront Jesus once again 
this time over the issue, this bone that they have to pick with them about the lack of washing of hands on the, on the part of his disciples. So we have encountered this group of Pharisees and scribes before. We've encountered them a couple times before. We have had the pleasure, though, of now having a couple of chapters without having to deal with them. And we've just enjoyed Jesus's healing and his miracles and walking on water and calming storms and everything. And we have been able to maybe put out of our minds just a little bit the unpleasantness of the Pharisees and the scribes. But here they come once again. Now, the last time that we encountered them, we were told that they are conspiring to have Jesus put to death. And so as they are conspiring to have Jesus put to death, we know that they have had confrontations with Jesus over his observance of the Sabbath or how he doesn't observe the Sabbath, in their opinion. They have had dealings with him over how his disciples apparently do not fast properly. They especially took exception to Jesus going to Levi, the former tax collector's house, and having a party at Levi's house. They've taken exception to a number of things, and all of this has led them in their hatred. Remember, as they saw Jesus heal the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue. All this has led them to such a degree of hatred that we're told that they have been conspiring with the Herodians to put him to death. Now, if the Pharisees and the scribes are anything, it is that they are diligent and they are not a group of people that are going to forget about something. As as time has gone by, maybe the months intervening since that time has gone by, we shouldn't count on them to have forgotten about Jesus and sort of let all this pass and now they moved on to bigger things. They've been stewing over this and they've been watching, and they've been listening, and they've been taking careful notes because they are looking for reasons to legally, or perhaps not so legally, put him to death. So now they come back from Jerusalem. Once again, they make the journey. They have heard some things going on. Perhaps they've heard about the washing or the lack of washing. But in any case, they come, verse 2, and they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So as they come and they confront Jesus over this these eating without washing the hands, most of us, I'm sure, we recognize the fact that this is this has nothing to do with germs or physical cleanliness. This, of course, is taking place hundreds of years before anything had to do with germ theory, before there was any understanding of how diseases might be passed through germs. So this has nothing to do with actual germs or physical cleanliness. This is not something that we could have looked back and said, only if they had had some good hand sanitizer. This all could have been alleviated. You know, they, if they had the hand sanitizer that killed 99.9% of all the germs that it con- comes in contact with, then this whole situation could have been alleviated. It has nothing to do with actual cleanliness because there was no popular understanding of the transmission of germs by way of physical contact in this day and the the transmission of diseases. Now, there was an understanding of physical cleanliness. It wasn't like just because they were ancient people that didn't know about germs, that they didn't take baths and they didn't clean themselves. They understood understood the reality of exterior cleanliness and they understood the reality of taking the dirt and washing the dirt off one's hands in order to have clean hands. But this is not at all what the issue is revolving around. The issue is revolving instead around their exception that they they take over the lack of ritual washing. So this has nothing to do with physical dirt on the hands or on the body, but it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus and his disciples have been observed not or failing to ritually 
ceremonially wash their hands before taking of food. And that is what they take exception to. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Verse 3, so now we have these two verses of parenthetical explanation. The two verses are, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. So there's the explanation there. Mark, of course, offers these parenthetical explanations because his audience is a Roman audience that would have been largely ignorant of Jewish customs, the custom of ritually washing the hands. So he offers an explanation to his Roman readers for the Pharisees and all the Jews. So all the Jews means all the Jews. Usually in the New Testament, the Jews or all the Jews means the religious leadership. But in this case, it means all the Jews because the leaders have just been named for the Pharisees and all the Jews, meaning not just the leaders, but all of the people. So this is a widespread custom that all the people observed. This custom, this tradition of not eating unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, for there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So there's his little aside, his explanation there. And in reading that, we see the connection and we see what has sparked this latest controversy. We see that in the word marketplace because we're told that the tradition is that not only do they wash their hands before they partake of food, but they also have traditions of washing when they come from the marketplace. So that connects us back previously to the episode that we read about in Gennesaret when all the people were bringing the people to the marketplaces. And we said then that the marketplaces, that was a generic word. It doesn't necessarily mean the place where things are bought and sold, but it means a public place of gathering. So the public places of gathering was where they were bringing the sick to and Jesus was healing. Now we're told that the Pharisees have this tradition and all the Jews have this tradition of ritually washing their hands before they eat, but also of washing. And that word there, washing, the second time we see washing is a different word. It's the word baptizo. And we know that word. Our our theology is baptistic, right? So we know what baptizo means. It means to submerge, to immerse in water. And so what we're told there is that there were two types of ritual cleansing or two stages, so to speak, of ritual cleansing. There was the ritual cleansing that in which you ritually or ceremonially cleanse the hands before partaking of food. But if you were, you found yourself in a public gathering type of place, like a marketplace, then you had to go much further. You had to ritually bathe your whole body because you had come in contact with the common folk, with perhaps even Gentiles. And so here Jesus and his disciples have been coming in contact, in fact, close contact, with all sorts of people. Remember, this is a predominantly Gentile area. The Jewish influence here is minimal. And so many Gentiles have been present. They've been near Jesus. Jesus has certainly been touching sick people. He has been cleansing lepers. He's been touching lepers. And so he is... From a ritual or from a ceremonial standpoint, he is very much defiled ceremonially, which would have necessitated, according to the tradition, this baptizing, this ritualistic bath, which we're told the disciples have been observed not doing. So 
these traditions that these disciples or that these Pharisees have established, these traditions of the elders that were told. It's going to be five times in the passage that we're going to read tradition of the elders, the tradition of the elders. So let's begin just unpacking this by understanding what the tradition of the elders was. Most of this or some of this probably most of us have heard or quite frequently probably heard. These traditions that have grown up around the law of God Traditions that uh, were intended to provide sort of a buffer or a fence, if you will, a hedge, if you will, between the law of God and the people of God in such a way that the law of God was given in the Old Testament scriptures. But then as time went on, there were these traditions that were added to it, these customs that were added to it that the Jews were expected to observe And the idea was that if you observe these customs and these traditions, then as long as you made sure that you kept those, you were insured of keeping the law because it was like this buffer zone between you and the law. For example, God says, uh, of course, uh, the uh, commandment that keep the Sabbath holy and do no ordinary work on the Sabbath. And so around that grew all these traditions or these regulations which specified exactly what you could not do on the Sabbath in order to keep it holy. And the idea behind that was keep these traditions and these customs and you'll be sure to keep the law behind it. Now, as we approach the passage here, as as we begin to just unpack it, one of the things that I need to confess to all of us is that I've teached or I've taught I've taught and preached this passage and similar passages that that direct themselves toward the same topic, the same idea. I've done this on a number of occasions before, but I don't think I've ever really understood what Jesus was getting at before. Because here's how I have presented this in the past and here's how it's been presented to me, probably to you as well. When we begin to think about these traditions that the Pharisees and the scribes had put into place, we see that as sort of a noble endeavor, something that started out as a good idea with good intentions, but it has come off the rails. And all these years since these traditions began to be put into place, it sort of has come off the rails since then. And a thing that started good has now ended up in a very bad place. And so by example, we can look at that and say, even things that have a good beginning with good intentions When God's not in them, they can go bad and they can go very sour. And that's very true. But as I have reflected and quite frankly struggled with this passage for the last two weeks, this has been one of the most difficult passages. to. I think this is the most difficult passage to prepare in Mark's gospel yet. But as I've struggled with this passage for the last two weeks, I've become, become convinced that that is not the way to see what Jesus is saying. Instead, What Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and scribes is something much, much harsher, much more severe. The warning that he is giving to them is much more pointed and his declaration of their wickedness is something much more straightforward than I have given credit to in the past. I have basically in the past seen this as, as we said, just something, maybe there's a good intention behind it, but yet it went too far. Instead, Jesus is declaring there was no good intention in any of this from the start. That this has been wickedness and unrighteousness from the beginning. 
So the way that we want to see this is let's just begin by recognizing something that's very true about the scribes and the Pharisees that perhaps we haven't recognized before. The Pharisees and the scribes, of course, we won't go take the time to go through a definition and explanation of what those two groups of people were. I think we're familiar with scribes and Pharisees by now. But these scribes and the Pharisees, we tend to think of those, those two groups of people as the groups of people in Israel that had the highest view of the Scriptures. The Jewish people in general were people that had a high view of Scripture. They were supposed to have a high view of Scripture. They were the ones to whom God has given the Scriptures. But even among the Jews, we have tended to think of the scribes, they are the professional class of people, that it is their job as, so to speak, lawyers, that they deal in the law of God. It's their occupation, it's their profession. And so they naturally have a very high view of the Scriptures or of the law. Pharisees, on the other hand, that's not a professional group, but instead that's a sect of Judaism. And we've often thought of the Pharisees as a group or a sect of Jews that themselves had a particularly high and honorable view of the law. And so therefore, together, these groups of people, the the sayings of the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees, they have put into place this hedge around the law that they love so much. But what Jesus is going to say in this passage, what he is going to show us, and I'll show us clearly as we walk through the passage, that what Jesus is teaching is that these people who profess to have such a love for Scripture actually hate it. And they actually disdain it more than the other groups of Jews in Jesus' day. The first place that we can recognize this is just by thinking in terms of generalities of what we know about the scribes and the Pharisees and and how they approached the people, how they approached the law. So there was a common misconception among the rabbis, among the scribes, the leaders of Jesus' day. There was a common, I guess, perception, we could say, that the ordinary Jewish person was incapable of understanding the Word of God, that there was just an incapacity on the part of most people to comprehend the matters of God's law. And so therefore, what was needed was these teachers, these scribes and these Pharisees to teach the common rabble how to understand properly God's law. Now, we often talk of the fact that God, His people, we we never in the church age, we will never outgrow the need for preachers and teachers of the Word. We've talked about this many times. It's a reality in the church that God is pleased to have His kingdom be sustained and move forward based on the preaching of His Word. To have a man that God has raised up to stand before God's people, open His Word and say, this is what God's Word says. So God is pleased to have His people edified in that way. But that's not the same thing as saying that God's people are incapable of understanding His Word. Because we're not. The Scriptures make the assumption from beginning to end that they are understandable by God's people. That's called the doctrine of the perpescuity of Scripture. It's a hard word to say, but it's an easy word to understand. Because what that means is just basically a long word that says Scripture is understandable by God's people. Scripture is clear. That's how Scripture sees itself. 
Scripture doesn't see itself as a book of mysteries in which special people and special teachers are needed to unlock the mysteries of what nobody else can understand. Again, this is different than saying God is pleased that His people on a regular basis are edified and challenged and instructed by an anointed preacher of God's Word. That's different from saying that. What we're saying is that Scripture, that the Scripture that God has given us is understandable by His people. Now, there's not a chapter in a verse that we can turn to to say, let's look at this doctrine and see how Scripture says, see, it's Scripture's clear and understandable by God's people. I can't say to turn to 2 Hezekiah 4, verse 12, and there we'll see the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Because there's not a verse and chapter and verse that says that in a clear, succinct fashion. However, Scripture makes the assumption from the beginning that that is what that the nature of the Scripture is understandable. It's clear. It assumes that of itself from the beginning. And so to see this, you just need, need to just look at your Scriptures through the eyes of understanding how the Scriptures understand themselves. The Scriptures see themselves. I should say that in the singular. The Scripture sees itself as something the people of God can understand. For example, think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. We all know that passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you shall, what does it say then? Teach these things diligently to your children. And then it goes on to explain how as you sit at the table, as you walk by the way, you should talk of these things and you should teach these things diligently to your children. So do you see the assumption there? In order to teach these things diligently to your children, Scripture assumes that it could be understood. And we see this assumption all over the place as we talk about the letter to the Ephesians and how the, Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians clearly is written not just to the elite leaders of the Ephesian church, but instead to mothers and fathers and bondservants and children. The assumption is you can understand this. Or, for example, we see it Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So, we see this assumption all throughout Scripture that at the Scripture that is given to God's people assumes itself to be clear and understandable by God's people. So when the scribes and Pharisees take the stance, well, the people can't understand the Scriptures, they need us to explain them to them. Do you see the low view of Scripture? Do you see the denial that God's words are understandable by His people? Do you see the disdain that they have for Scripture, denying the nature and the character of Scripture that God has given to His people with the assumption that you can understand this? But beyond that, they not only deny the clarity of Scripture, but they also deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's where these traditions really come into play. Because these traditions, as we said earlier, are designed and built and put into place in order to say God's law is so important that you keep. Let's make a buffer. Let's add something to it just to make sure that you are able to keep these commandments. So to put that another way, not only do the scribes and Pharisees deny the clarity of Scripture, 
they also denied the sufficiency of Scripture. Because in essence, what they have said is, God's law is not quite enough. We need these extra traditions to help us. And so there is a, therefore, a twofold denial of the nature of Scripture, denying the fact that God's people can understand it and denying the fact that the Scriptures that God has given, the law that God has given, is in and of itself sufficient for God's people. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And other places that we could point to that say to us that our Scriptures teach us that in the Scriptures we are given everything that we need for salvation and godliness. There is nothing that's needed by term, by way of information that we need for salvation or a life of godliness that's not found in the Scriptures. That's what we call the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scriptures. And the scribes and the Pharisees deny both of those. And so what I want us to begin by seeing is seeing what a low view of Scripture one holds when they think that Scripture just somehow cannot be understood by common people. And furthermore, Scripture is not quite enough. The law of God is not quite enough We need to modify it. We need to add some things to it in order to make it sufficient for the people's needs. Do you see what a low, do you see what an insulting view of Scripture that is? What a patronistic view of Scripture that is? What a a demeaning view of Scripture it is? To say God's Word needs us, the explainers, the clarifiers, and the ones who can add what's needed to it, in order for you people to be able to live by God's law. So that's the starting point. And that's the point from which we begin approaching the passage and seeing just what sort of a a group of people Jesus is dealing with. Jesus will not deal with these people on the terms of saying to them or or taking the, the position with them, you know, these traditions that you have really kind of started out good, but we need to we need to back up a little bit. We need to modify these. Jesus instead is taking the approach, these things have been wicked from the start. 